In this episode, we're going to do a little random mashup of everything we've done in the past so far in the previous 16 episodes, as well as a little bit of tidbits and trivia on some random subjects that fall under the world of intelligence, espionage, and the gray man concept, as well as answer some viewer questions that I have received recently, as well as some that I owe answers to from the past. I may even drop a tidbit or two that might surprise you, scare you, or you might think, yeah, I figured as much. That's what we'll talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. Welcome to episode 17. I'm your host, Shammer, and this is Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. We talk about the Gray Man concept, also known as the Gray Man Theory. I always find it interesting how just a few years ago it seemed like the whole world's falling apart and everybody's freaking out about surveillance. What's being this? What's being that? Who's listening to what? And nobody really knew what's going on and it was just like every other hot topic that went away. I do hear about it sometimes, but the people that talk about it are some of the same people who have these $800,000 smartphones that they got to look at so the camera can see their face. And you can actually hear it take the photo, but you never see it on your phone. It's because it's collected into a database that's going to build a series of pictures over time. It helps with facial recognition software, as well as aging of a person who goes missing or might be a criminal and kept in a database like that for law enforcement to use at will, at least certain law enforcement. Other ones have to request it if they know where to go. But that gives you an example of the convenience of things. It was actually about two years before Alexa came out. I did a show and I remember telling people, about surveillance, I said, you're going to willfully pay for a product that's going to come and do surveillance in your home. You're going to see it as fun and convenient. And some of these guys on the show that said no actually went and bought Alexa or a similar device. It's not that they're always turned on, but they can be, just like your phone. You ever have to do a thing with your phone company, you know, and they call your phone and then they turn your phone on, restart your phone for you. You have no idea where they're at. They could be in India for all you know. That's a cell phone company. What do you think real surveillance does? You ever consider what happens to everything you delete off your phone or if it's even really deleted? They used to say that about computers. Now you can get like digital shredders or it re-deletes and rewrites so many times. That's not all that common on a phone and even the ones that claim to do that don't really do it. Whole point of this is that's the most unsecure device you own. That's why they're so easy to get. You want to be surveilled? Have a smartphone. One question I got asked, which I thought for a growing podcast was kind of odd at this point, even though it's growing, it's not like some huge show, but it was, what country are most of your listeners from? And I think that should be obvious. They're from Texas. That's not a country? Eh, Go down there and say that and see what happens. Most of the listeners are from the great state of Texas. I have often been asked if I'm going to write a book. I'm actually working on one, possibly two, one of which might be a podcast on a whole other subject. I don't plan on writing a book based on the gray man concept. Most of the things I talk about are available on the internet. Some of them are pieces of other books. Uh, Some are the authors I know or are familiar with. Some are from people I have no idea who they are that have certain amounts of information, especially things like neurolinguistics and body language. I would never write on that. There's pages upon pages and terabytes of data out there. So I would essentially be reinventing the wheel. It's probably been reinvented 10 times over. I wouldn't really see a dime for it because there's nothing that would sell. Uh, The other stuff I'm doing is completely on another subject, stuff that's been asked for that I'm probably just going to give away. The only papers I ever write or documents I write that are for intelligence anymore that might be considered part of Gray Man 
Some definitely is, is when I train people for the Department of Defense, which is a program that ended recently, and I've been asked to do another one. I'm not going to be doing that anytime soon, but I still create certain documents or update stuff as things change. Here's a fun fact. I always like coming up with things I see in movies and TV shows. I just recently rewatched a TV show called Limitless, based on the movie Limitless, where uh, the guy gets the pill, you know, and it's a neurotropic, and he's really smart. And one of the episodes, the CIA gets involved, and they talk about the CIA has no mandate, and you can't work on U.S. soil, and it's illegal. And I thought, man, this is a good example of a show that doesn't have anybody they paid to come work there. The fact of the matter is you absolutely can work on U.S. soil. That's been true for about 11 years now, so if you're curious how that works, they have to be conducting any intelligence they would normally conduct, but the purpose of it must be leading towards an arrest, which is not normally what they do. So while gaining intelligence, they must work towards building a case, which is why they have an FBI liaison. Then what happens is when it comes to the point of exploiting all the intelligence value they can get and making the arrest, they coordinate with the attorney general's office who has the FBI get involved and the FBI makes arrests. That way, it's to keep the agency out of the picture that nobody knows they're doing these operations. So why some people say, oh, well, that's illegal or whatever, it's not. That's uh, been changed technically never really was illegal while i hate the modern term technically with little air quotes it really wasn't there were certain mandates that had to be followed and how it could work but it was becoming more difficult and more necessary for them to do so so when this all changed by executive order it made it easier for intelligence agencies especially the cia to work on u.s soil to work with law enforcement it made it easier to stay completely in step with the law it also got more assets on the ground for not just terrorism but other types of crimes and domestic terrorism and other events and has actually been a very successful program some to always remember about body language is that it comes in clusters there's always more than one thing you're seeing you could argue two things are a cluster but typically you'll find at least three we will dive deeper into that in further podcasts targeting on specific reasons for types of body language or specific parts of the body and exploring that further as well as getting into ixs queuing and neuro linguistics programming but I mentioned this for people to go back and re-listen those podcasts to talk about body language. Also, anything where I mentioned detecting deception. One thing I'm working on, and I cannot guarantee when this is going to happen, but a lot of people do giveaways and promotionals on YouTube. We actually had a suggestion, and it was more on educational value of possibly doing some sort of interview or video with me where we take a few minutes of that video, and I put out some directions about identifying things I'm doing that's certain types of body language, detecting deception, and having people analyze it and make educated guesses or logical deductions on whether or not I'm being deceptive on purpose or not, what I'm being deceptive about, what clusters they see, etc. So start learning more about that, get some books, do some listening, and uh, try to keep track of that, especially detecting deception, and that will be coming out sometime this year but I don't think it's going to be like any time really soon. One of the shows we talked about surveillance and discussed a little bit about counter surveillance. I think one of the things I can't stress enough is separating reality of everyday life from the fantasy of the world of espionage. I call it fantasy, not because of movies or books, but because compared to the average everyday person, that world is a fantasy. You live in a place where you're constantly under threat of surveillance, being captured, being found out and bad things can happen. That's not always the case in the civilian world. There are isolated incidents. Of course, there's people that have stalkers and all these types of things. Sometimes we do it just to learn or be more prepared for some situation where we might need to 
look over our shoulder per se or just have better situational awareness to avoid some sort of civil unrest. The thing to understand is to accept the things you can't control. So the most real thing I can tell you about things like surveillance and security is it doesn't exist, meaning there's no such thing as security and there's no such thing as stopping surveillance, meaning there's somebody out there, at least an organization with the skills and ability to defeat anything and get what they want. The only question is, why would they target you? It's funny, too. I've asked that question. I knew a lot of people to think they're on some sort of government watch list. So here's a fun fact. Domestic terror watch list. You ever look that up? If I ask people who's on the domestic terrorist watch list, I always get names of organizations or general terms for groups of people. The domestic terrorist watch list is a standard watch list. I think there's only about 10 people on it now. Mostly women. They're all individuals, and they're mostly from around the 70s. And most of them are part of extremist left-wing organizations that committed crimes in this country, such as like bombings, that type of thing. I always get a chuckle, too, about the one where people say, oh, patriot groups or gun owners, they're all on a list, which I guess you could say gun owners true. So if you, say, get a concealed weapons permit, you have to get fingerprinted by the FBI, and it's annotated that that's why you applied for it. I guess there's a database somewhere that says, yeah, here's all the guys got fingerprinted so they can have concealed weapons, for example, something like that. Uh, But patriot groups and militias and that type of thing, no. There's nothing out there that says that. There was a document. I wish I could remember what it was. People always quoted it, but everybody quoted it. I was like, did you even read it? Because if you read it, it's very clear what they're saying. They list off several types of organizations that, based on history, have had isolated incidents of certain things, and they specify what they're looking for. They just don't blanket statement that. But very few people are on a list. More people are on the no-fly list and don't even realize it until they try to get on an airplane or buy a ticket than are in any other type of list that they can dream up. I was asked about ops bags. I mentioned that in one of the shows, and I was asked about the uh, type of messenger bags or satchels, as some people call them, if that's realistic. It is for some people. Um, It's more common, actually, in a lot of circles. It depends on what you're doing, especially if you're like in a school or at a university as a student or, uh, say, a doctoral candidate or a professor. They're not too uncommon. There's also briefcases in some situations. There are occasionally where people use backpacks, but it's pretty rare, and I'm talking about professional grayman. It's basically some sort of luggage device for carrying the things you need that's sort of along the lines of everyday carry, sort of not, that would fit in the environment and role that you're fulfilling. All of my ops bags are a form of a satchel or messenger bag. Now, I have a couple different sizes with different designs and reasons why I use them. I've mentioned before. I have that because they would look natural and normal in the situations I use them in. Definitely works for me. I'm used to them. But also, if there's a situation where, say, I needed to use one of my backpacks for whatever reason, I have that as an additional device I can strap to the backpack or I can still carry. The real big advantage to them is their easy access compared to more backpacks. You can typically access them with one hand. You don't have to put a lot of weight in there to worry about having it be lopsided on your body. In fact, you typically don't want a lot of weight for the consistent items you carry, but you do have extra space if you need it. They're easily moved out of your way and typically don't throw your balance or weight off too much. They're easy to transport, easy to store. That's part of the reason why they're used, but they're not the only bags that are used. Yeah, one question is about the specific uh, company I mentioned there's a specific company there might be more than one now that makes the ops bags and certain other things for some agencies it's kind of funny so it's a it's a company that's public known but not so known that's all I can really say it's actually considered classified to mention who they are because they have a contract with that agency 
What I can tell you is part of the stuff they do is more custom ordered, even though it's generally for them. It's more custom ordered than the regular products. But one of the things they go so far as to get triple stitching, and it's not just triple stitching, it's the materials used, the type and thickness of thread used to make these bags like last decades. Virtually indestructible, arguably, to where certain portions of them, it's almost like you could get pulled by somebody and they wouldn't tear a rip. Certain products with the right type of stitching material actually hold body weight if you're hanging off a ledge. Uh, so they get that crazy. I don't know what they would cost if they ever market them to civilians. They can't by the contract, which may have changed by now. But they would probably be expensive. So an expensive messenger bag that I've seen is decent material. Typically are bags made for photographers. Sometimes they're 150 bucks, maybe 200 bucks. I wouldn't be surprised if these are right up there with high-end luggage where they were six, 800 bucks for a messenger bag. And that's just my guess if it went on the civilian market. I have no idea what the agencies pay uh, by contract for these items. One question I was asked was, what was the most difficult training experience I had? And I was glad it was that general because it wasn't in the intel world, even though there are some mentally and physically demanding things. So worst thing I ever had to do, and this used to be very common in some training in Camp McCall, was they have these exercises where you have to work together as a team and they come up with these simple yet difficult to comprehend tasks. So the idea is this village is going to flood for whatever reason and you need to properly move 100 sandbags, right? So a sandbag, you should look up the measurements on these things. They get pretty fat. And at the time, the sandbags we were using weren't the plastic ones. They were more the burlap, which stretches a little bit. So this kind of foreshadowing, but it gets worse. So we had to carry them about 100 meters and the ground wasn't level. And what they showed us was a properly filled sandbag and they would twist it and tie it. And this guy would put his hand around the part after the tie, kind of like if you had the, a little hard candy, you know how it's twisted up in the bag, it's that twisty part. And he put his hand around the twisty part and you'd look down through the top and you couldn't see the bag. And he said, if you can't see the bag, that's a properly filled sandbag. And this guy was a big dude. He's bigger than me. I'm 6'4". He was bigger than me. Huge hands. Big old mitts. So I was like, all right, we can do this. And we had other equipment with us and rucksacks. And like we couldn't throw the sandbags in the rucksacks and carry them that way. But you could like have two guys like carry each a side of the rucksack and use it like a carrying platform or a litter if you wanted to. So we knew we were screwed when we got near the end because there was this little Asian dude. I mean, this guy might have been 5'5 five five with little tiny hands. Strong dude, though. So he would pick up these sandbags and just pound them into the ground over and over again to compact the dirt and the sand. And then when he got it packed down, which you could already see this was going to be bad, he twisted up and hold it. And you could see, you know, some of that twisted up material sticking out of the top of his fist and be like, no good. And then you had to carry the whole thing back. You couldn't dump it. And it took quite a while to come up with 100 sandbags. I don't think any of us did it. I don't think any of us got the 100 sandbags in the time frame. That was the most difficult and frustrating thing I did, and we were already so exhausted at that point. One of the questions I got was kind of long and lengthy, but what they were really asking was about foreign intelligence services that I've worked with and who was uh, you know, really cool, really good at their job that I found surprising. I think learning the Al-Zayish existed was surprising in itself. Al-Zayish is Kurdish intelligence. So back in the day around, I don't know, maybe maybe 2004, 
we had what they called the Iraqi National Guard that was disbanded for a while, became the Iraqi Army, and then I was working with the Special Forces team in 10th Group, training some guys, and then the uh, infantry unit, field artillery unit we were attached to, were part of, was trained in what they called the 1st Iraqi Army Battalion, but they're actually the 2nd. So over there, Kurdistan's a country, really. I mean, they realize that there's maps saying they're part of Iraq, but Iraqis don't go to Kurdistan. And they had a pretty squared away military force. It was very impressive. In fact, in that time frame, it was the only place where you could go as an American and they would actually take care of you, pull security for you. Like somebody came after us, they would just go wipe them out. It was pretty amazing. And the Iraqi military, I think, kind of got up to that speed in some area many, many years later, but not completely. But the Kurds had some guys from the al Zayish, which was Kurdish intelligence. Real squared away guys. Um, spoke really good English. They really put a lot of effort into it. At that time, some of our bigger targets that were most likely not in the country were part of the Ba'ath Party, which was Saddam's political party. A lot of them had gone into Syria, into hiding, and other places. And there was a couple little towns. And I remember the al Zayish guys would go there, like establish life, go undercover. I mean, it was like legit gray man stuff in places where they had to pretend to be Ba'ath Party Sunnis. And these guys, I don't think they were really Sunnis, at least the ones that were going there. And they had to infiltrate and find these guys. And then they would come to us and be like, hey, you don't need to look for this target anymore. Like, they wouldn't arrest them or whatever. They'd probably just kill them. But they would come to us all the time. We'd talk to them like, hey, this is the kind of stuff we're looking for. Because uh, at the time, I didn't really work in Intel. I didn't know much about Intel or the laws, so they kind of protected me. But I was just like, hey, we're looking for this. Can you find this for me? And they would just give us these detailed breakdowns and they would call us like this could take a few days a few weeks they call us, say hey you guys need to come out here we got something for you we'd sit down with these guys and i might sit there for an hour and write pages of notes they would come up with some really detailed stuff and i was really impressed by that but i also didn't understand how intel worked so years later when i was really working at intel especially in like administrative leadership positions staff positions when i got out of operational environments even though i kind of understood it because i worked at mid and higher level operational stuff I really got to see how other foreign intelligence services worked. And I would compare them to the al Zayish. I'm like, man, these are basically a few guys working out of a barn is what it seems like. And they were just as squared away as some of these bigger name intelligence agencies that are out there in the world. You know, thinking about it, one of the shows I did was on spies in the news. And we focused a lot about Chinese guys in uh, our universities. And I put up a video that week about a guy... Uh, spying in Australia, for example. I think what I might do when I run across it is post articles of things I see and just give a short analogist like, hey, this this is probably espionage or this guy's probably a spy or this is how this stuff's historically happened. Because I'm used to being part of a nonprofit where I would put up and share information on a completely other subject and let people kind of interact. And I didn't really like put out statements on behalf of the organization. But since this is my thing, I'm thinking about doing that now when I do Facebook and Twitter feeds, make comments and uh, explain what something probably is to show people how to look at that. Because I see stuff all the time I come across. I'm like, oh, that's espionage. Oh, that's spies from this country. Oh, that's that's what this is. And I see it all the time. To me, it's just second nature. But most people don't realize how much of that's out there. So I'm thinking about pointing some of that stuff out. I did have a question about the training that I do uh, that I would charge people money for. A lot of times when it's local, I don't charge them. I have made some money at it. 
But all that training I did was more on what you'd call firearms-related tactical, non-tactical skills, orienteering, medical training, prepper, survival training, things like that. The training I've done that's more along the gray man concept or on any specific subject, whether it's body language interrogation, living abroad, uh, home security, whatever, I all did as either a contractor or a volunteer, training people in the Department of Defense to work with Joint Task Force, or training people on the side that are getting ready to deploy that I've met or been asked to assist in certain organizations, um, usually just active duty military. I've never actually done that as a private civilian. I very easily could. I think uh, I would probably do it if there was enough interest. The The issue with it is, unless it's something where I'm just giving a lecture, kind of like teaching on a podcast. I always like to do a lot of interactive training, so it could take a while, it would cost some money, and then there's travel involved. So I don't know that I'm ever gonna do that. Uh, if I do, I'll definitely let people know. I got some friends and coworkers that I could get involved in that. It would be fun to do for a weekend or maybe a week involving some surveillance exercises and other forms of training or classes or interrogation role playing. I think people would enjoy that. But it takes the instructors the skilled, knowledgeable instructors to do it. And the numbers I have on that are pretty limited right now. So I'd, I don't know that I would do it or not do it. I'm just saying what it would probably take. It's nothing I put too much thought into. I just recently got out of the realm of being an instructor and kind of being on my own and getting to do what I want because it's been several years since I've done that. So it's not really on the forefront of my mind, but it's definitely something I've thought about. Yeah, one of the things I was asked when we did the show on live drops and dead drops is an easy way to practice that. Maybe I didn't mention it in there or briefly, probably kind of glazed over it. But think of it like a scavenger hunt for kids or like you do that romantic scavenger hunt on your anniversary type thing. That's really a lot what it's like. You're just finding a way to pass messages. Uh, you try to do them in person, but you can do them in code. You come up with your own little system. Maybe just do it for fun. It doesn't have to be that elaborate just to learn how to do it. You know, whether you're moving the flower pots or parking the car differently, like I talked about on the show, something like that, essentially a scavenger hunt where they have to go and pick up the item or transfer the information, whatever it is. Most of the examples I give on how to learn anything, even if you look at situational awareness, or we talk about being in the restaurant and creating those distances around you and identifying what people are, who they are, what they're talking about, how well they know the person listening, you know, eventually say three conversations at once. You can very easily turn into a game with another person. Most of the training I did on my own, most of the stuff I do to hone my training, I continue to do on my own. I do very little with other people. It's just what I prefer to do. Um, but you can definitely turn it into a game. You just got to kind of find a fun way to do it and uh, find a situation that would make sense. So I recently, I think a couple of days ago on the Facebook page, um, because I was trying to figure out what to do for this podcast. I had a few ideas I re-recorded several times, and then I went back and looked over some questions, decided to go this route. But anyway, because of this question, it was about the show I did on disguises, um, really kind of like changing your appearance, not really having a disguise per se, just how you could change your appearance. And I mentioned quick changes. put a video up a couple days ago on the Facebook page from the lady who worked at the agency who was the disguise master, essentially. She does what other people in other fields have done with movies where they show things from like spy type movies and she gives her critique based on what looks real, what doesn't look real, what's effective, what's not on people doing appearance changes. And that's why I put it up there so it could be watched. So definitely check that out again. Check out that video 
and listen to that podcast and you'll get a better idea about changing your appearance. So to break it down for those that have asked kind of like a simpler yet more detailed way to explain the gray man concept, I guess it's like comes in all different questioning forms. It's really anything about living your life, anything at all that you use as either some sort of think of it like a form of camouflage to hide who you really are to where people see you, you're in plain sight, but what's really going on is hidden. And we see all the cool stuff in the movies and the disguises and all this, but it can be anything. It's what email programs you use and how you use the email and that type of security. What phone companies do you use? What kind of phone plan do you have? How you dress, of course, is part of it. Things we've talked about with security, surveillance, counter surveillance, um, surveillance detection, deception, reading body language, interrogation, running sources, getting information, and so many more things. There's so many skills and tactics involved. This is why I've said that I started doing it because it's kind of a niche area. There's nobody really doing it. There's a few people that don't use that term that write books on it that are professionals from clandestine and covert agencies. You know, you go to YouTube and look it up. You'll see a few channels with some followers that do like one video on it. They all typically just regurgitate something they've read somewhere that's just one minor part of a simple idea, less than really 1% of anything, which it's not their fault. I mean, they never did it. You know, they just think they understand it. It's just like anybody else. They have a themed show or channel on something and then they tag something in there. They think they know what they're talking about that actually is a career field they've never done and they do their best, you know, so I don't hold it against them. That's part of it too. That's why I try to share as much information as possible. So when you see these shows and people talk about it and they only go on for a few minutes, I could do days on this, hours upon hours, discussing all kinds of facets of stuff as what we're doing, getting into this more and more. You know, as we get into the second go around, about the time I hit 20 shows, because uh, I'm doing this review now, I was planning on doing around 20 or 25, even though I missed a couple of shows because of my personal schedule. But we're on about 10 weeks. So that's why I was going to do it around 20 episodes. So by the time we hit 2021, I'm going to go through and kind of add on another layer of some of the previous episodes and add in some new stuff so you can see how much stuff's really there. But that's kind of a more deeper way, I guess, a broader way to explain the concept or the theory. I think it would take more specific questions for me to, to give more specific of an answer. So the areas that I'm going to do more stuff on will be anything involving detecting deception, reading body language, other areas or what I would consider subcategories of that, as well as situational awareness. I'm basically a lot more focused on detecting threats, uh, pattern analysis, probable outcomes, things I would call using your wits and your smarts and you're paying attention to essentially predict the future at least the immediate future or potential threats or events that you can move safely in and out of that environment for however long you need to be there. Here's a good question to ask yourself going back to the very beginning of this show. Do you or somebody you know cover up the camera on, say, their computer or on their smart TV? Remember all that stuff about people being able to go there and access that? We even saw stuff on, like, ring cameras and some of those other surveillance cameras. This is why I say don't do wireless if you're doing surveillance. But you know people that cover up those cameras? Might be you. Do you or whoever it is that does that, they also cover up the camera on their phone if there's a camera on it? Because I can tell you right now, most of that surveillance is done that's serious is going to be through the phone anyway because it's with you everywhere, wherever you go. 
you're counting on somebody being in front of the TV or the computer. I just find it interesting. That I know people that do that. They're like, yeah, I cover up the camera on my television and my computer. And I say, show me your smartphone. I'm like, why isn't that camera covered up? And, and they just never think about it. I was asked about Edward Snowden. I always get asked this question and to avoid the debate. Um, I'll just keep it very simple. One, he's by definition not a whistleblower. The reason why is, there's two reasons. First, there's nothing he's talked about or he came out and talked about that wasn't already out there. He wasn't the first to do it. That's important to note. But whether you believe that or not, the other thing is to be a whistleblower by legal definition, he can't be because he's not uh, protected by the Whistleblower Act, and he knew that. That's not like some random paper you sign, like you're briefed on it. When you work in agencies like that, regardless of your position or... When you work in some of the places I have, it's in-depth conversations and legal discussions where you understand you're not protected legally by the Whistleblower Act because you're dealing with national security issues as well as other things. Now, I get some people don't agree with that, and that's fine. I understand that. I just, people that want clarification on it, uh, I tell them that. And that's part of the reason why he's not in the country because he knows what would happen to him. You know, what would happen if he ever does get caught and brought back here, he'll probably be prosecuted. Um, most likely go to jail for a long time. Uh, I'd forecast him being in ADX Florence where all the big bad boys are for the things that he had done. That's uh, pretty much a guaranteed conviction. So again, it's not about people's opinions, just saying. That's my, that's my thoughts as far as I'll go. I know part of this probably sounds weird, too, because I'm like reading the questions and not reading all of them verbatim and definitely not saying where they're coming from, uh, which I'm doing more for those people's benefit. They probably don't care. That's just something I naturally do. Uh, so, yes, from YouTube, I am looking at uh, getting the channel back going, probably doing a live show once a month, uh, maybe as short as every two weeks after I do a short series or just three or four podcast shows, whatever their topics are, just cover them doing a Q&A. I would do them more often than that, but it's kind of like doubling down on the same thing, and I don't know that I have the time for it. I do plan on eventually taking some of the podcasts and taking the meat and potatoes portions of it, using those audio tracks and adding video to have some more videos up there, giving some good visuals, especially with things like body language and surveillance. I think it'll help out. Can't say when, though. I uh, actually was supposed to have moved already. I was going to be moving in mid-March before the beginning of April, but it was about mid-February when I was really paying attention to COVID-19 with a friend of mine and forecasting what was going on. And I was like, hey, I don't think I'm going to be moving. Uh, everything's happening so much quicker. And where I was going to go, it was a lot worse with a lot of like, hey, you need to stay at home force orders. You know, it's wasn't on the news, but it's one of the places where it's being strict enough. It's like those stories you hear about. You know, somebody takes their kid to the park and they get arrested. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to go there. And then some of the other places I've looked at too, even like that one, there's places where you can't buy a house right now because the laws of the state, based on what they're doing, they're not allowing people to show houses or whatever is involved there. So I would be stuck in a motel shelling out a ton of money or paying the equivalent to my monthly expenses in a crappy motel with my dog wondering where my stuff was and when I could get a house. So I'm glad I didn't go. So that's kind of affected some stuff. It's given me more free time to get the podcast going because I was going to do that later in the year. But at the same time, I got other things going on that I'm closing out and 
preparing for the move and then, you know, all this virus stuff that's affecting my ability to get on there and really dig in and get some of this stuff going, which I kind of want to do it, but I don't want to get distracted by it to where I can't make these things happen that I need to make happen right now. I had a couple of questions on active shooter and similar situations. We're actually going to be addressing that in a live show. I got to talk to my security expert I'm going to have on there and somebody else to figure out when to schedule it. I was actually going to do it in a couple of days on Sunday, uh, but one of the people isn't available, so it's probably going to be in about 10 days. I think I'm going to stick with Sundays for my live shows when I do them, but I'm going to try to get it out a week or two in advance, but we're going to focus a lot on security because my last couple of podcasts were on uh, physical security, fixed site security, vehicle security, that kind of stuff, and cover some of the surveillance aspects as well as Security planning, active shooter situations, dealing with domestic terrorism and identifying threats at that level, things you can do, um, civil disturbance, civil unrest, riots, that type of thing. So we'll save those questions for there. But for those listening, when I do have that, I will very likely put it on a podcast with a link and say, hey, it's in the show notes. Uh, But I will put it on Facebook and Twitter as well. So if you like the podcast, at least go to Facebook or Twitter, whichever one you prefer and follow the page and then if you want to make sure you know when things are happening and you go to notifications make sure at least i don't know twitter works but at least for facebook you know make sure you comes first whatever all notifications whatever the setting is or just check it regularly but uh we do a live show one to two hours two hours would be the longest i would go where people come in and they ask questions we throw the questions up on the screen while discussing the topics Um, that's going to be my show. I'm going to do like once a month. So my most recent one we did on propaganda, information, warfare, and false flags, all part of psychological operations. One of the older questions I have, I was actually going to do a YouTube show on this a long time ago. I'll probably have to do a podcast. It was about, uh, things that are classified above top secret. Uh, so the short version is there's no such thing as above top secret. There's different levels of classifications depending on the department in which you work and whether or not it's managed by, OPM, the Office of Personal Management, or belongs to, say, the White House or other agencies. And then there's certain other things like compartmentalized programs and other things that I will go into and explain. Um, But there's nothing such as above top secret. You hear it all the time, like in movies, or if you ever watch any documentaries and they talk about disclosure, like UFO disclosure, for example, or like Bigfoot or whatever, and you get an expert on there and they'll talk, this was classified above top secret. No such thing. I'm sure those things were classified based on whatever system he used at the time or whatever system we're using now. It's just like there isn't anything above top secret in that system. There's other classifications and other things it could have or it could be compartmentalized, um, but that's not how it works. So I'll get all that together and put that show together and probably do a show on clearances, understanding how those things work and how you get access to them. Uh, people probably enjoy that. It'd be random trivia to me. To me, it's like a boring subject, but I'm learning that some of the stuff people like, so I'll probably get that together and explain how some of that works. One of the questions about the show I did on the everyday carry a different way, a gray man everyday carry, and I tried to get some more unique perspectives on a few things. I think that was the first or second show I did on the podcast. It was like, yeah, so it was kind of vague, I guess. Could have been more detailed. The thing is, there's so much stuff out there on EDC, and everybody has a thought and opinion on it, and it's it's whatever. Um, I, I didn't want to recreate like a survival EDC video. I just wanted to give some unique perspectives and other ideas perhaps people could think about. So maybe I could make a list of those and if I can come up with 20 or 30 uh, unique things, maybe I'll do a similar show again or another one to get more specific to it. 
Some of the stuff, though, is pretty much the same as things you hear. They're just practiced, rehearsed, trained. They're taught a little differently when you're working in a field where people actually do what, I guess people call it bugging out. It's not the term we use, but there's people actually do that stuff to understand how it works, but it's similar. Um, but yeah, it was it's just, there's a lot of stuff out there if you're looking up everyday carry. So go to YouTube, look it up. You can see a lot of stuff, a lot of articles. What it comes down to is the things you carry every day, whether you need them or the things you want to choose to carry that you might need. Like I know guys that carry fire starting material every day that work in the city. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just figuring out what you actually need. So I know this was kind of short, uh, one of my shorter shows, but it's to give you just a podcast summary overview and some of the things that in the second set of 20 episodes that we're going to dig a little deeper in, as well as answer some of the questions I've been sent recently, as well as in the past. Um, and then I'll figure out when we get that show on security-based stuff scheduled, probably in a week or two, and we'll get that ready for those who want to do that. And then we'll get back to regularly posting stuff on Facebook and Twitter. So as always, like and share this, whatever platform you're on. If you're listening for the first time or on any other platform and it's not one you like, if you go to anchor.fm.com and look up this show, or if you're listening to it, you can see that there's uh, icons below. It's on several platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and two or three others. You can, of course, check the show notes out below, and there's another podcast I recommend by David Robertson, who's occasionally a guest on my live YouTube shows. And if you're looking for daily Gray Man contact, you can find that on Twitter, Facebook, the link down below. If you're interested in any of the older videos I have on YouTube, those links are down below. We only have one newer one up now, but maybe by the time you hear this, we'll have more. So thank you, and we look forward to making you more shows here in the future on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight.